you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Hey, everybody. Seth Meyers here. Welcome to another episode of Late Night Lit, our monthly series spotlighting books and authors. Here to shine some light on what's new and noteworthy in the world of literature is our very own Sarah Jenks Daily. Take it away, Sarah. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Jenks Daily, and welcome to Late Night Lit. This month, we have two fantastic guests who are both friends and colleagues. The first is New York Times bestselling and Booker Prize winning author Marlon James, whose new novel, Moon Witch Spider King, was published last month. It is the second book in the Dark Star trilogy. The first, Black Leopard Red Wolf told the story of Tracker, who is on a quest to find a missing boy and who, over the course of the novel, journeys through a fantastical world of African kingdoms, shapeshifters, and spirits. The second book in the trilogy is told from the perspective of Sagalon, the Moon Witch, whom we meet in the first book, but whose story we didn't fully know. It is a captivating, sweeping, and exceptional adventure. Our second guest is Jake Morrissey, executive editor at Riverhead Books and Marlin's longtime publishing collaborator and friend. In addition to their very successful author-editor relationship, the two also have a fantastic podcast called Marlin and Jake Read Dead People, which I might add is a delightful way to spend your commute. Both Jake and Marlin have read more books than I could ever dream of reading, and they are, in my opinion, dream guests for a literary podcast. We were thrilled to get the chance to chat with them both and hope that you enjoy it too. But first up, here's my conversation with Marlon James. Hi, everyone. We're here with New York Times bestselling author Marlon James, whose latest novel, Moon Witch Spider King, was published in February. Marlon, welcome to Late Night Lit. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We've had the pleasure of having you on Late Night a couple of times. The last time was 2019 to discuss the first novel in this Dark Star trilogy, Black Leopard, Red Wolf. You also, when you were on with Seth, did mention that the next novel, which is this one, would be narrated by the previous book's villain, Sagalon. Right. I think after reading this new one, Moon Witch Spider King, I didn't necessarily see her as the villain I did in the previous book. Mm-hmm. Have you felt like that's been feedback you've gotten or you yourself saw her from a different perspective? I saw her from a different perspective even then. That, you know, it's, it's a pretty messy business what happened in Black Leopard, Red Wolf. And I don't want to say it's open to interpretation. The fact is a kid, the child is still dead. Yes. But Tracker, you know, and storytellers in general have an agenda when they're telling you a story. Um, I was talking to my editor, Jake, actually. We did a podcast on Unreliable Narrator. And it's a trope and whatever. And and there's some of my favorite novels. 
But when you come out of, say, you know, what we think about fiction, stories are always unreliable. And um, it's not so much that that Sutherland was a villain and not a villain now, but Sutherland's, our entire perception of Sutherland was a man's perception of her. And people forget that that Black Leopard Red Wolf is a pretty long book, but it's still just one man's opinion. Right. And um, and he he's not an omniscient narrator. There are things he's not going to know. There are contexts he doesn't have a clue of. One thing um, you may get after reading Moonwitch is that it's a way bigger story than Tracker ever thought it was. And because of that, he may have misunderstood or just simply did not didn't get what other people's roles are in the story. Or know about anything that happened to her mm-hmm. years prior. Yeah. For those who haven't really dived into it in the way that I have or some other people who have read both have, it's not a traditional linear trilogy, which you've explained, but I'd love for you to talk about how it is told from different perspectives and what the three books will look like when you have all three done. Yes, it's not a linear trilogy in the sense that part two doesn't pick up from part one. In fact, part two starts several years before part one. It really is more in a vein of, say, Arashomon where different eyewitnesses are kind of giving you different takes of the event, and each stop is a different eyewitness take, except it's not just a simple what happened was. It's how do you, how do you see the story? And, and Sutherland's version of the story is, of course, way wider than Tracker's, even though Tracker's may have been way more focused on the actual event. And I think that's you know, the difference between them. I, I wanted to explore how different people look at the very same data or the very same situation and how that can change how people's views. And I remember being inspired years ago by um, reading up a news report of actually a lynching. Oh, really? And the reporter asked the Black residents about, I think it was like 1932, and they were all about, oh, you mean when they lynched those four boys and blah, blah, blah. And the reporter was very careful. He didn't, when he reached the white residence, he didn't ask, you know, he didn't ask, tell me about the lynching. He just said, tell me about that summer. And they're, I mean, you mean when those guys messed with that poor girl? And, it, you know, they were all reporting, they, they claimed to be reporting on the same event. And both people believe they're telling the truth. But you see how different those stories are. So that made me fascinated about how people seeing the very same events and participating in them come out with very different views on what happened and how much the burden of truth is really what you want to believe. Right. Yeah, that's so true. We've talked about this in the past. I think you talked about it a little bit with Seth. When you're writing this, you used in Black Leopard, Red Wolf some cards and post-its and created this timeline, this organizational chart for yourself. Because like you said, there are so many perspectives. There are so many characters. They're moving through all these different places. What did you do for this novel? Was it the same? Did you have like a crazy visual board in the background? Yeah, um, this is a, the actual place I was working on a novel for most of it. But I did have visual board. I actually started drawing new maps, um, which are on the wall over there. I, I even started sketching out some characters. Yeah, because I, I kind of had a thing for the shape-shifting lion. I'm like, I got to draw that one. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you'll ever share any of those character sketches with your readers? 
Well, the drawings of Super Sexy Land, I might have to put them back in a PG pose <laughs> before I, I release those. But I, you know, it's, it's, I, I wondered, I, I don't know. I wondered if COVID had something to do with it because I spend a lot of this book not at my own desk. Mm-hmm. I was writing in Portland, Connecticut at uh, my partner's sister's dining table for a huge chunk of this. And I remember, you know, some books that I know I already have, I've had to buy all over and build a stack on that, build a mini library and all of that. But I think because, you know, where I was wasn't settled necessarily. I still had to do more work of rebuilding these worlds and had notes on places and a lot of stuff in architecture because um, Sogolan sees not just a lot more countries than um, Tracker, but she sees them sometimes, you know, over a hundred years in the past. Right. So yeah, there was a lot, there was a, a lot of research going on and a lot of um, juggling parts I had to like have all around me. I've heard that when you start writing, sometimes you start in the middle or at the end of things because this isn't linear and maybe neither is the path to writing a novel. Is this still a way that you approach a new idea? Yeah, but I wish people knew I don't do that deliberately. I really think I'm beginning the book. Oh, really? Even with this novel, you know, I really thought I'd started at the beginning. I really did. And and I think the first page is now like page 320 or something. <laughs> I really, th- I, I, I don't do it deliberately. I try to be- think, I always think I'm at the beginning. And I remember beginning this and, um, and it's funny, I had a novel, not a novel that began that way, where I started with a chapter that was a flashback. And this is why I, I'm always scared of flashbacks because then I'll start a flashback and let the flashback more than the present tense. And then I have to tell myself what I tell my students all the time. If you like your flashback more than the rest of your book, why not start with a flashback? Right. That's good advice. And that's what I did. And so the novel ended up jumping way before when that book, when, when I actually started writing the book. And that's what happened. And that's what usually happens is I don't set out to necessarily be scattered and all over the place. It just kind of happens that way. <laughs> Well, it's maybe an unconventional process, but it has yielded truly amazing results. And I recommend everyone pick up a copy of Marlon's latest, Moon Witch Spider King, from your favorite independent bookstore. When we come back, Marlon will be joined by his esteemed editor, Jake Morrissey, to talk to us about their friendship, their working relationship, and their very entertaining podcast, Marlon and Jake Read Dead People. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hi, everyone. We're back with author Marlon James, and also now with us is his editor, Jake Morrissey. Jake, thanks for joining us. You are welcome. I'm happy to be here. So you two host an incredible, wonderfully dense and very specific and impressive podcast called Marlon and Jake Read Dead People, which I want to ask you about. But first, I want to ask a little bit about your dynamic and and your relationship. So when did you two start working together? How did you find each other? 
Do you want to answer that or do you want me to? I think you should answer that. All right. Well, Marlon was an author at Riverhead and had published a very well-regarded novel called The Book of Night Women, and his editor left. And I stepped in in his wake, and uh, we started talking about this book about the attempted assassination of Bob Marley in Jamaica in the 70s with, it turned out, more than 70 different voices, all of which were fascinating and distinct. And so we started working together. And uh, the result was A Brief History of Seven Killings, which went on to win the Booker Prize and become a bestseller. And we have been editor and writer or writer and editor and uh, arguing about books and (laughs) authors ever since. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the podcast is so much fun to listen to because it does seem like it's a window into everyday conversations and how you two communicate. Did a podcast seem like the natural step in the evolution of how you guys talk about books? Well, do you remember how this started, Marlon? I, I mean, my vague memory, I don't remember the exact days. I just remember people used to always pass by seeing us arguing about a book. <laughs> and, 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 it was, and it was usually always an old book. You know, we're not, we, don't, we, don't, we don't argue about the Jonathans. Um, you know, it would be, I mean, a really big discussion about whether you should really read Return of the Native or not. You really shouldn't. Well, Um, that's exactly right. I mean, I can remember Marlon and I stood in front of Marlon's publicist, Claire McGinnis, arguing about who was better, Charles Dickens or Anthony Trollope. And Claire stood there listening to us, and she thought, this is totally a podcast. (laughs) And so, you know, it it was a little bit like listening to something between, you know, the New York Review of Books and the Newlywed Game. It was, uh, you know, we were not shy about, you know, bringing in pop culture references or dissing mm-hmm. what the other one said or whatever. So, mm. um, Marlon's right. We're, we are always talking about books by dead people and whether or not it's worth reading Wuthering Heights or The Return of the Native, as he said. Neither of which are worth reading, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, the title obviously is self-explanatory in that way. But for clarity's sake, the authors that you talk about in the books that you talk about, the authors are dead. I know you both, you mentioned you read old books and you've done this for a while, obviously, but neither of you probably want to offend anyone that's alive. So <laughs> this is an, an easy way to do that, right? You'd be surprised how many people still get offended because that <laughs> that's their favorite author. That's true. <laughs> but I also think, I've always thought books were worth fighting for and, and also worth fighting over, honestly. And uh, yes, we read a lot of the, the, the quote unquote canon, but we also talk about a lot of books that, you know, people should read or that didn't get a lot of attention the first time. So there's still, you know, there's a lot of that. Well, one of the great things I discovered when Marlon and I started talking about books is that when he was a kid, you know, he would read anything. So, you know, he's got opinions about, uh, as I said, Charles Dickens, and he's also got opinions about Jackie Collins, which is great, because I've read a lot of stuff over the course of my life as well, some of which I'm not proud about. Um, so it's we can talk about and have, you know, everything from trash to treasure. Mm-hmm. I'm always surprised when I listen, just the sheer amount of books that you two have read. So have you met people in your life who have read as much as you two have? Because you do really seem like you've read everything. <laughs> uh, maybe once or twice. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm also, I'm also still pretty much a nerd. You know? <laughs> so I have a lot of free time with no life. <laughs> so I'm gonna, and, 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 you know, I can't remember if it's Terry Tempest Williams who said it or Patricia Hample. One of them said it. 
that I think they said they write so they could have more than one life. I mean, I read so I could have more than one life. And as I say, you know, the only category I needed for a book was that it was next. And I mean, yeah, and honestly, I'd read anything. And as an editor, and I was this, I was this way as a kid too, I was always interested in process. That's why I'm always happy to reread a book that I like to figure out how it was done or to sort of see what, you know, see how it was layered or whatever, which obviously is really useful when, um, when you be, when you become an editor and you're reading draft after draft after draft. But the thing that I say to people when they say, Oh, you've read so many books. It's like, well, yeah, we've read books, but we haven't read, we've read the books that we wanted to read. Um, so it's not like, you know, I can't speak knowledgeably about, you know, hundreds of years of poetry because I've never read it. So we, we talk about what we're interested in and what we're passionate about and or what we hate. So it becomes a, a much more of a conversation. Um, and we don't claim to have read every book or be particularly um, knowledgeable about lots of authors. But you both are. So you, you are very knowledgeable about many authors. I just love listening to it. And I've listened to quite a few of them. And there are some major disagreements that you two have had about authors you love and authors you hate, like you mentioned. Who do you think maybe is the best example of one that either Jake you feel is particularly worthwhile and Marlon you disagree on or vice versa? He's no fan of Great Expectations, which is like such an important book for me. You know, 600 pages I'll never get back again in my life. <laughs> um, and I have been pilloried for this already. I know there are people who love Great Expectations. I, for Christmas a couple of years ago, I gave Marlon the six volume set of the Anthony Trollope novels of, of the Pallisers, which is basically a soap opera in mid 19th century British history and literature. And I defy you that he has opened one single page of those books I've to opened, read. I've opened them. <laughs> to throw them away? No, they're in a very nice place at the bottom of this bookshelf. <laughs> I keep saying, I'm going to read them one day. One day, exactly. Just, but, I mean, I the good the news book, is, is, is that we, are, we agree on a lot of books, but don't necessarily, I mean, on a lot of authors, but don't necessarily agree on, on everything they've written, which I think is in some ways makes an interesting conversation as mm-hmm. well. Marlon, you said Great Expectations meant a lot to you. So how many of these books that you find meaningful are just based on maybe when you read them or where you were in your life when you read them and less about the actual book or the author? Um, I don't know if it's an either or. I think um, that there is always that book that found you in a way. Mm-hmm. And, and and you have you have that sense when you, you read them. And I think they like Great Expectations, like I, I'm fine of a lot of the comics that I still love. One of the reasons why I love them, I think, is because I read them when I was 15. But I also remember reading, you know, a novel like Tom Jones um, when I was 16. And I was like, I had no idea old books could be fun. And this was a novel for, that I was being tested on for the exam. Like, oh, my God, you get tested on books you like. <laughs> I had no I had no clue about that. But there are some books which, I mean, if I read now, um, you know, if I read, I read um, you know, Catcher in the Ryan now, I'm like, dude, get a life. But if I read something, go back and read something that Lord of the Flies is even darker now than when I remember when I was a kid. So it's a com- I think it's a combination of books finding you and, and there can be a book that you just you just read it at the exact right time. And other books that can that you can dip into anytime. Or what happens with me sometimes is every time you read the book, it's a different book. 
Jake, do you feel that way about when you encounter books from the editor perspective? Well, I actually, I'm about to disagree with Marlon. I actually think timing is everything when you approach a book. Crucial, in fact, and that there are books that I that I was not ready to read, um, and I thought were boring or stupid or too long or whatever. And then, and then down the road, I would. I would be a different person and would approach them again and have a transformational experience. That was my experience with some of Fitzgerald. Um, I mean, I can remember thinking that The Beautiful Madamed was a waste of paper. And then I went back and thought, okay, I now understand what, what he was trying to say. And because I was older and smarter and, or, or at least less stupid. So, <laughs> so I also am interested as an editor of seeing how how authors actually manage to pull off what they've done. And it, it's, you know, paying attention. As an editor, I pay attention to language. I pay attention to characters, pay attention to sort of storytelling. And the great thing for me is going back to books that I've read um, already is that, as Marlon said, sometimes you have a completely different experience of it. And you think, oh, yeah, you know what? Really shouldn't have, uh, really shouldn't have thought this book was quite as good as you did. Or this is amazing. I can't wait to talk about this on the podcast. Well, I really love at the end of a fiery opinion, Marlon, you will tell listeners not to come for you, um, which <laughs> leads me to believe that maybe some have. So you do typically ask for feedback from listeners, and I would love to know what kind of feedback have you gotten? Do you get people disagreeing, and do you also get topics about people they, they'd like you to read and, and discuss? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> we've gotten a lot of people asking us about David Foster Wallace. And uh, at least I can't speak for Marlon. I'm not ready to talk about him yet. Yeah, I got nothing to say either. <laughs> <laughs> and the interesting thing, at least in the comments that we get is, oh, this is to Marlon's point. I didn't know that reading old books could be so much fun or listening to people talk about old books could be so much fun. And um, that's in large part to uh, Mr. James being um, unafraid to sort of tell the truth about what he thinks. That's good. And they're dead. <laughs> well, I can remember somebody saying to me what one of our first episodes I made, we were talking about E.M. Forster, and I made some comment about the movie version of one of the Forster novels, and I made a comment about Hugh Grant acting with his hair. And there was a pause, and Marlon said, girl, that's the biggest shade I've ever heard a white boy say. <laughs> and I'm still quoted that by people. That should probably be your next Christmas present to him, Marlon, as a t-shirt with that on it. <laughs> or maybe some needlepoint of some sort. That's so funny. You've done two seasons of the podcast. So I, I heard a rumor from Claire McGinnis, the lovely Claire that we mentioned earlier, the publicist for Merlin, that there are maybe some more episodes coming. Is that true? And what can we expect for the future of Marlon and Jake Reed Dead People? Well, we definitely are going to do some more. We're going to be launching two kind of um, amuse-bouche, if you will. Um, there goes that word again. Just came across. Wait, it's two words. It, well, it's hyphenated, boys and girls. Mm. Um, anyway, um, but basically two episodes that we launched in February, and then we'll be coming back in the spring with more episodes for the third season. Great. I so appreciate both of your time here. It's been so much fun, but we typically end with book recommendations from guests. So if either of you have one you'd like to share, or both of you, we would love to hear it. And it can be from a, a living author, too, if you'd like. I have been really digging the Encircling Trilogy by Carl Frode Tiller, and, and a lot of people have been calling it the anti-Nosgard, um, which is, I understand why they would say that. 
It's about a guy who loses his memory and the entire novel is people around them giving their accounts of who he is. And because the entire story is being told by the people around him, he has no memory, he has no idea who he is. It becomes this mystery kind of thriller as you go through each of the three novels. I just think it's a, it's a fantastic book. Encircling. All right. I have two recommendations, both dead people, both I've been reading recently. And Marlon is going to cringe at one, I think, and oh, probably Lord. agree with me on the other. The first one of which is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. Is that the one is, I love? Because I love that book. Well, okay, good. Because, all right. So it's a 700-page revenge fantasy. Love it. It's so great. I mean, so much stuff happens. It's about a guy who, you know, horrible things happen to, and he spends the rest of the book plotting his revenge. That's so fun. that's so much fun. And the other book is the last book that Jane Austen published when she was alive called Persuasion. And it's a novel about a woman who who was persuaded not to marry the man she loved and spends the next seven years regretting it. And it's a story of regret. As I said, it's very short. It's powerful. It's my favorite Jane Austen book. And it makes you realize that people can have another chance at happiness. I love both of those books. I know. I'm surprised. I, I, I forgot that you liked The Mount of Count of Monte Cristo, but you're yeah. right. We had talked about that. It's That's called true. growth, Jake. <laughs> well, that is a perfect note to end on. Thank you both so much for joining us. This was so much fun. Thank, Thank you. you. This month, we asked author and journalist Frank Bruni for a book recommendation after his recent appearance on Late Night. His moving memoir, The Beauty of Dusk, on Vision Lost and Found, was published in March. Hi, I'm Frank Bruni, the author of the new memoir, The Beauty of Dusk, on Vision Lost and Found. One of the best books I've read recently, actually I listened to it, was Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty, by Patrick Radden Keefe. Um, it's an epic of sorts and it's engrossing. It begins as something close to a tribute to American entrepreneurship and capitalism, but it ends as a devastating indictment of both. And along the way, you meet a host of fascinating characters and learn about the intricacies of pharmaceutical marketing, philanthropy, opium production, and more. So you're not just riveted, you're educated. At least I was, and I enjoyed every page of it. This has been Late Night Lit. My thanks to Seth Myers, Mike Shoemaker, Marlon James, Jake Morrissey, Claire McGinnis, Frank Bruni, Matt Ryman, Jay Johnson, and Ross Lupold. Our theme music was written and performed by the 8G Band. For Late Night with Seth Myers, I'm Sarah Jenks Daly. Thank you for listening and happy reading. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new, stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.